Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Out in the cosmos, that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. Yes! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Hello, and welcome to The Big Electron on KCOU 88.1. I'm Anahita. I'm Adam. And I'm Madeline. And we're joining you on a lovely Sunday afternoon. Beautiful. um, Here in Columbia, Missouri. So we're without our fearless leader. So of of course, um, of course, we're kind of scrambling to make sure we're doing everything correctly and, and not disappoint her. And we're terrified. <laughs> Jackie, come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today um, we have a fun story to start with first. Well, not story, I guess. Scientific sure. finding. Yeah, it's super exciting. Um, it's a little bit unfortunate that this didn't come out a couple weeks ago in time for Mother's Day. Um, because nothing says mothers like mitochondria, right? Obviously. <laughs> That's what I think of. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess the news is that supposedly there's a, a so there's a paper that came out in Cell, um, and it's called a eukaryote without a mitochondrial organelle, which sounds really boring. There's, there's several words in there that yes. I yes, science, that I'm science, science. <laughs> So eukaryote just means um, a small organism or any organism um, at the cellular level, and it has a nucleus. It's not a bacteria. Yeah. So basically it's any living thing that's bigger than a bacteria, more or less. Yeah. So we think of them as being um, kind of a step beyond bacteria. So we think probably bacteria came first, and um, then eukaryotes came later. And one of the things that makes eukaryotes eukaryotes is the fact that um, whereas a prokaryote or a bacteria, they have to do literally all the things on their own. They're single-celled organisms. They have to get their own energy and process it and do all the things um, just within themselves. So uh, I don't know how many years ago, a bunch of years ago, you know, in the... Lots, lots of years. <laughs> um, a large number of yeah. years. Um, there's this theory that what happened was that there's two different prokaryotes and um, one gobbled the other up, basically, and they kind of did a division of labor thing. And one of these guys um, was really good at making energy, and um, so that provided the energy for the bigger outside cell and um, kind of the, the inner cell um, was safe and happy and well-fed. So, so like the big overall cell then does, you know, just general functions, but then within it is this tiny little, uh, used to be its own cell yep. that just hangs out there protected and makes energy. It just does that one thing. Yeah. It's, so, and so that's part of this, um, title, a mitochondrial organelle. So organelles are just little kind of pockets within, um, cells. And so I, I presume we call them organelles because they kind of remind us of our organs, um, whereas I'm the person, I have all my organs that do very specific things. Um, and so they're kind of their own recognizable thing. We know that my stomach is making acid and breaking things down. We know that my heart is pumping blood around. So, you know. So they have specialties. They have specialties. You can recognize them. My heart probably looks pretty similar to your heart. Um, but, you know, you and I specifically are different. Right. My mitochondria and your mitochondria probably look pretty similar. Uh, similar, yes. Similar. So one of one of the most awesome things about mitochondria is that um, so because they um, are inside the cell and they're a fairly large part of the cell, um, 
you, you get your mitochondria from your mom, exclusively from your mom, and she got it from her mom and her mom and her mom. So we can trace mitochondria back um, all the way through our ancestors. So I can look at my mitochondrial DNA and I can say, oh, look, see my ancestors. Um, they came from Europe. And before that, they came from this other part of Europe and then trace it back to how they migrated all the way back from Africa. And so, cool. yeah, it's really crazy. I've never done it. I really wish I would have. <laughs> Most um, of us have never done it, but yeah. you know, it's neat to know that yeah. we could. There, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know of a, an undergrad class where that's what they do. Like what a cool project, right? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. See where your ancestors came from. Um, but yeah, so that's why it's kind of a mother's day type, um, type topic because it exclusively comes from mom. Um, and so anyway, the focus of this paper is that apparently this group found a eukaryote, a eukaryotic organism that doesn't have this mitochondria. Um, so the other, you know, the main um, distinction for what makes a eukaryote a eukaryote is that it has a nucleus. And so this organism still has a nucleus. It still looks, it still looks like, you know, a eukaryote, but it's missing its mitochondria. So, and because huh. the mitochondria is the kind of powerhouse of the cell, what would that be like? That would be like we found a person who's just missing their... Like they don't have a stomach. Yeah, their stomach or their liver, like some really important thing. <laughs> and they're just fine without it. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Yep. I don't need that. Nope. Um, so yeah, apparently uh, throughout the years, back in the 80s, they got real excited because they found some um, organisms that they thought didn't have mitochondria, but then it turns out they had something that was similar or doing a similar function. And so, um, it was less exciting than they thought. Um, but oh. this time, yeah, this time they're pretty, uh, confident about it. They found some, um, molecular markers that say, uh, you know, we can definitely recognize this as a mitochondria and it is definitely not there. So, Wow. Pretty pretty exciting news for those of us who love mitochondria. <laughs> I would say so. That's Which um, should be everybody. Exactly. Yeah, mitochondria are a big deal. Well, I I would like to say thanks, Mom, for giving me mitochondria. Yeah. Because if if you hadn't, I might be this this particular eukaryote. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't work that way, but I, that is really neat. That there's anything a, that can be a without happy it. Happy eukaryote. Maybe maybe your life would be okay. I don't know. Oh well, it's tough to say. <laughs> who, who who knows yep. about such things, but. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So mitochondria are super important for every part of the body, but also um, particularly in your eyes. So um, the process of seeing all these crazy things around us all the time takes a lot of energy. And um, so fun fact, um, that's why if there's any sort of mitochondrial disorder um, in, your, in your mitochondrial DNA, it might not happen at first. It might... Um, take several years to develop, but that's why, um, there's a lot of adult onset blindness. It's huh? usually, it's usually related to mitochondria. So the mitochondria are just kind of like doing their own thing in your cells and, you so know, it's our mom's fault if we go blind. Yeah. Yep. Technically it is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no way she could have known cause, uh, again, our mitochondria are just doing kind of whatever they want. They, they multiply when they want. They don't listen yeah. to anybody. They don't have to worry about like growing and dividing like other cells yeah. nope. like or like the cells that they're part of. Yeah. They just hang out and do grow and divide whenever they feel like it. Yep. And then they travel with the new cell when it divides. Basically. Yep. So, yeah. Geez. So uh, independent minded fellows. <laughs> yeah. There's a song that I really like um, that says slightly more, you know, thank you, mom, because slightly more than half of everything I am is thanks to you. So that includes... That's slightly <laughs> more, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it includes uh, your mitochondria and the transcription factors that turn on all the appropriate genes when you're like, you know, a tiny one or two cell organism. Slightly more than half of everything. So well, thanks, Mom. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, um, I might change change tactics here a little bit. And, Go for uh, it. Might talk about a, a great menace uh, to all of us. Our mothers. Um, <laughs> oh, is that, that just wasn't mine? what I was going for. That, uh, <laughs> Love you, mom. <laughs> no, of course. When I'm referring to any great menace, it's obvious that I'm talking about dogs. Oh, really? I am. I am talking oh, about most dogs. people. Oh. Go, oh. <laughs> I 
cat person. Um, <laughs> That's fair. So <laughs> anyway, um, dogs have been menacing us for far longer uh, than you might think. Uh, and I'd like to talk about fossils. Okay. Fossil dogs are the menace in this case. Um, fossil so, dogs. Fossil they sound dogs. so scary. They are. They are scary. And they get even scarier. Wait till you hear what they're called. Um, so there's been recent findings um, in the East Coast of this continent that we're on, North <laughs> America, um, that are about 12 million years old. That's the estimated age of these recently discovered fossils, and they are teeth, dogs' teeth. Okay. Uh, not modern-day dogs, but, you know, a ancient relative of, of modern-day dogs. Okay. Um, that um, That's kind of interesting for several reasons uh, at once. One is just the ability to find this fossil at all. Most of the fossils we find that are that age and from that region of the world are uh, marine fossils. They're mm -hmm. sea creatures because the chemical and physical conditions necessary to preserve their, you know, their hardened parts uh, mm -hmm. as fossils is more likely to happen at the seashore or uh -huh. underwater in some fashion. Um, so land-based animals leaving fossils um, isn't quite as common um, as you might think from the yeah. woolly mammoth. I did uh, not know that. Thing. Yeah, apparently it's a little bit harder um, to... Um, a little bit harder, and so your percentages of when you get land-based fossils compared to sea-based fossils are um, are not uh, as high. Okay. Like you get you get more sea-based ones, but for for whatever reason, they had never found this before. So it's um, this is a very rare category to find as this particular uh, you know family of creatures and this kind of tooth. But the the tooth is different. Uh, than any other kind they found before. That's how they're able to identify it as a different species. Okay. Um, and it sort of gives them a, an idea about what kind of food uh, this dog creature ate. Sure. And uh, it was people. Not really. <laughs> I made that up. I'm sorry. Um, that's more you just my dog paranoia there. But what it did do was it ate uh, other animals as a carnivore, as, mm -hmm. uh, as modern day dogs are as well. Um, this one was a really, really carnivore. It's called, <laughs> this is its actual name. Finally, here's the, here's the punchline. It's called Bone Crusher. Whoa. Yeah. That's it, so scary. I know. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Um, so it's um, apparently the teeth that they found give them the impression that it was really good at chewing through hard objects like bone. So they've given it the name. They are the Bone Crushers. And I'll, I'll quote from, um, from my source on this, mm -hmm. which is, uh, it, which is itself a summary of the article in Christian Science Monitor. Uh, bone crushers lived across North America between ten and th between ten to thirty million years ago, with the last remaining members of the family lasting as late as two million years ago. Um, and uh, they eventually went extinct. We can only guess at why. Uh, maybe competition mm -hmm. with. Uh, creatures similar to, to what we see today. Yeah, it may have just crushed all of its enemies <laughs> uh, completely and had no food left. That's possible, but we don't really we don't really know. Um, but um, the um, the new species was discovered in the Calvert Cliffs region of Maryland, and uh, it's um, been published by a group of researchers based at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. So um, anyway, watch out for bone crushing dogs. Cool. Uh, and don't get crushed. That's really crazy. <laughs> okay, so can I interject this like kind of fun, gross fact? Yeah. Please do. <laughs> so my hypothesis would be, based on the name, that its poop was white. That is an interesting... <laughs> <laughs> that's not the first hypothesis that would come uh, to my yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> nope, that's my hypothesis because hyena poop is white. They, oh. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hyenas just kind of eat whatever they can find, it, you know, even if it's been dead a couple days, uh -huh. even if, you know, whatever, if it looks tasty, they go for it. And um, yeah, they, they can at least digest small parts of bone. Huh. Um, and so they have a, just a ton of calcium in their system. So they poop, oh. they poop white. Huh. I'd yeah. like to, I'd like to read another sentence from, from my source here uh -huh. directly verbatim. It's a rather long sentence. <laughs> the fossil defin uh, definitively belongs to a member of the extinct dog family Borophaginae, known informally as bone crushers. Due to the typically strong jaws and large teeth the animals used to possess, uh, used to possess, similar to modern hyenas. Oh, there you go. There you go. 
Interesting. They, you know, I bet I bet you're right. Yeah. This is science. We're doing <laughs> science right here on the air right now. You heard it here yep. first, folks. Uh, bone crushers had white poop. <laughs> so I bet we could get funding to figure it out. I do we want funding <laughs> to figure this out? Who has to collect the like stool samples? Yeah, I don't know. We'll yeah. get undergrads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so classy. Um, yeah. Apparently, you're correct. Oh, so. good, good, good. <laughs> Okay, well, with that, we'll go on our first musical break, um, and then we'll be right back with more science uh, here on KCAU 88.1. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Big Electron um, here on KCAU 88.1 FM. We should have said earlier that if you uh, feel like calling us, our phone number is eight. Or I'm sorry, 573-882-8262. But um, if, if you don't do feel Facebook. like calling us, we're not offended or anything. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, we, we would like it if you called us. I mean, we love company. Yeah. I mean, we're not taking it personal, but <laughs> we you don't know, bite. Um, we're not yeah, bone crushers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if so, at least we don't bite hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit really quick about a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. Which is science communication. Yep. And kind of the reason we're here right now. Yeah. And we, we kind of have different reasons for why we love, well, no, not why we love it, but why we're doing it. Sure. So why we're pursuing it so actively. Yeah. So we thought we'd kind of give you guys an idea as to why we're into science communication. Yeah. Um, so I'll go ahead and start. Um, Great. I have thought about this a couple of times and I think what I've come up with is that to me, it's a little bit like a puzzle in trying to make sure that these things all make sense to people. So actually kind of the radio is kind of hard for me because you don't get any feedback yeah. from your audience. And so I really prefer, you know, talking to people one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. or something like that um, and figuring out like, okay, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Okay. So here's the punchline. Like here's this really cool thing. <laughs> Um, and then that's the second part of it is just, it's kind of like when you share your favorite like Netflix movie or something and you're just like, oh my gosh, guys, you have to watch this new video I saw or this new song that I really like. And it's, it's just a matter of being really excited and wanting to tell yeah. people and hoping they put up with you, honestly, because <laughs> <laughs> other people don't always find it quite as exciting as I do. So I have a question. Do you prefer poster presentations or like a, a talk, like a PowerPoint presentation? Oh, um, I actually, I prefer talks. I prefer, yeah, PowerPoint. Well, but to be fair, that's partly because I really like lay talks. I like telling oh, okay. for the general audience more so than posters, which can sometimes be, you know, they're pretty data heavy. They're pretty, um, I don't know, intense and jargony and stuff like that. But that being said, um, one of my favorite projects that I, I came up with happened because I was giving a poster and even, wow. yeah, I was just saying like, oh, you know, I had these two results that didn't, didn't work. Mm -hmm. And then I realized maybe they didn't work for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, then I went on to investigate that and work with my cute little fruit flies. <laughs> and so that's how that whole process was birthed. So cool. Yeah. Well, poster parties happy have. birthday. <laughs> how about you, Adam? Well, um, I going to say why I like doing this and I, I want to make sure to all the listeners out there, this is not conflated with being good at it yet. Um, <laughs> but, um, but why I like, you know, talking to non scientists about science is because I've learned since I became a scientist that it's not as giant, a barrier between mm -hmm. the two as I used to think. Like I used to think that um, scientists were these lab coated, um, mm. you know, superhero type characters who did stuff that it's like, Oh my God, they're geniuses. How mm -hmm. could I ever do anything like that? And uh, then I, then I went and did it and I found <laughs> out that um, it turns out we're, we're human beings. Uh -huh. uh, Weird. Yeah, I know. And, and we're not even necessarily that smart. Yeah, it's, it's partly just knowing a bunch of tools yeah. and how to use them. And and learning a bunch of fancy vocab words <laughs> yeah. that, you know, anyone can learn under mm -hmm. the if given the motivation. Most people are never going to have the motivation to learn True. what <laughs> mitochondria are, for example. 
yep. well, maybe that one. I don't know. Uh, I, don't know. I may be dramatically overestimating <laughs> how important mitochondria are to, to most people's day to day lives. But, you know, the the thing is that all of this stuff is incredible and it should be treated that way. But it's also very credible. It's yep. also very down to earth. Ultimately, if you dig through all the fancy vocab and all of the um, social status kind of stuff that uh, in this sort of otherworldly magic era mm-hmm. or aura around <laughs> era, uh, aura around <laughs> around science, if you cut th- all that fluff away, it's very much just a logical process of testing a few things out and seeing whether your crazy ideas are true or not. Yep. And none of it's none of it's supernatural. None of it's out of this world. It's mm-hmm. all accessible if you want it. And um, I just like making it more accessible. Mm-hmm. So. That's it. That's all I can say. And then real quick, PowerPoint or poster? Uh, can I say a presentation without PowerPoint? Oh, yeah. That's a great one. So yeah. like radio. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Boom. Uh, yeah. I, I prefer some sort of presentation that doesn't rely on just slides, but I, I'm totally dependent on PowerPoint when it comes to my own stuff. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I prefer a presentation, you know, gives a little bit more opportunity for context when it's needed. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I would say that. So science communication, I guess the way I got into it and why I think why I want to pursue it so actively is because I think that it was kind of hard for me to grasp a couple concepts in science Uh until they were presented in really oddball ways. (laughs) And so I can't think of a really good example right now, but I guess like describing spectroscopy, which is a technique that looks at the interaction between matter and light. Mm hmm thinking about that as a shadow instead of thinking about it as the scientific concept. It just like, that makes it click. And so if I'm confused by, not that I'm better or understand better in any capacity, but you know, that means there's so many other people out there who don't get it. Sure. And I remember the first time I heard you present it like that, I was like, oh, that makes total sense. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, that's my only example I can think of now, but there, I stumble across them all the time Uh of just things that I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, like that is what that's like. Mm-hmm. It's like comparing mitochondria to so, like something without a liver, like oh, yeah, something yeah. living with without mitochondria, something without it's that's relatable. Like, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, absolutely. Yay, science communication. <laughs> so, in that vein, um of science communication, we had a great speaker from Yale University come mm-hmm. to our campus um not last week but the week before. Yep, he was great. He was. It's Dr. Daniel Colon Ramos, mm-hmm. who's originally from the university, or who is originally from Puerto Rico, but is now a professor um, at Yale, as yep. I mentioned. <laughs> and he's um, a neuroscientist. Yes, and we got a couple minutes to talk to him a little bit about his research and his love of science, and a little bit about his outreach program, which yeah. is really cool. Very cool. Um, so we have a recording with him that I will play now. <laughs> Enjoy. We have with us today Dr. Daniel Colon Ramos from Yale University, and um, we're so grateful that you took the time to let us interview you. Could you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity of, of talking to you today. So my lab is interested in the cell biology of synapses. Synapses are connections that are formed between neurons. And a healthy human brain has over 100 trillion synaptic connections. And uh, there are over 100 billion neurons in a healthy human brain. Just to put that in perspective, there are more neurons in one brain than there stars in the Milky Way. And those neurons all need to connect to each other very precisely. And that happens during development. And we're interested in how those connections happen and how they change with experience, how, how they underpin processes like learning. Well, if I understand the science correctly, that is a lot of neurons. That seems like a large number, more than the stars in the Milky Way. Um, So when you talk about how the connections are formed, are there some of them that just form automatically and other ones that don't? Um, Or is it all one sort of mechanism that makes that happen? So there are a lot of neurons and a lot of connections. And in all animals that have nervous systems, those connections need to be precisely formed, similar to the way that the circuits in a computer need to be precisely assembled for you to, in your keyboard, when you press the letter T, you can see the letter T in your monitor. 
these circuits need to be precisely formed so that when you you know you open your eyes, your brain knows how to process visual information and to tell you, well, this is, you know, you're at Misu and uh, you are watching a football game, and so that so that connectivity needs to be happening uh, in a precise manner, and not only in humans, in all in all in all animals, as I was mentioning. What my lab does is that we use a tiny nematode. A nematode is a worm, and it's about the size of a comma in a sentence. And we use it because it's the only animal for which science knows the connectivity of every single cell. So we have a map of how all these connections are made. And then we can, using this animal, examine how those connections are made in the context of the living, developing animal. We cannot do, do those experiments in a human, for example. But because of evolution... A lot of these uh, molecules that are important for instructing how those connections are made in the worm are actually conserved, meaning that they're also similar to the connections that are that are instructing the formation of our own brains. And that that's actually um, that's that's an important concept that we use. So the concept is that in that nature, when it finds a good answer to a problem, it uses the same answer over and over again. So we use these evolutionary conserved processes and we try to elucidate fundamental mechanisms that are bringing these circuits and these neurons together so they can function correctly. That's a really good way of putting it. I feel like my research is so far removed from an applicable, you know, idea that I'm always struggling to find a way to explain, like, I promise it matters. It just is like three or four degrees removed. Do you, um, do you see a lot of young scientists struggling with that? Yeah, the way that, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people struggle with that because, uh, young scientists in particular, because we are, we are uh, used to thinking that it's only useful if it's only a degree of separation from something that you're going to use tomorrow. But there was... You know, there's an excellent example that I like to use, like a really cool example about uh, the electron. So the electron was uh, discovered in the Cavendish Institute in England. And there used to be a toast at the beginning of the 20th century, the 1900s, where the graduate students there will make a toast and they'll say to the electron, may never be of any use to anybody. (laughs) Because the electron back then was like the Higgs boson is today. Okay, like something that's really cool, but no one knows what. And right now we're having a conversation that is recorded and transmitted through electricity. And there's no way of thinking about a single thing that we use that is not touched by the knowledge that was produced by understanding electricity and the electron. That absolutely makes sense mm-hmm. to me. So you talked a lot about um, interacting with children and even just explaining concepts that to us as scientists are simple, like what is GFP, green fluorescent protein? Um, So I guess my question is, what do you consider the point of that? Is it more to inspire the kids to get them to ask more questions about the world around them? Or is it that they need to know about green fluorescent protein because it's cool and they want to entertain their friends? I think the point for us as scientists to talk about our science is twofold. One of them is as a scientist, to, to have to explain our science to a layperson that's not a scientist helps refine the, refine the concepts like we were just discussing about, you know, the, the importance of basic research, the importance of, of producing knowledge, like the process of discovery, um, verbalize it to ourselves and be able to, to understand that in a way that, that influences what we do day to day. So there's, there's, a, there's a personal benefit to the scientists doing the communication, to be able to uh, put into words uh, thoughts and concepts that that we have or we think we know, and verbalize it and examine them. I think until they're really crystallizing words, like they're you you assume that you might understand them, but 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 it's until you teach them that you really understand them. So there's a value in that. And then there's value to the general population also, and I will describe it like this. I think that um, when, when I think about the 20th century, for example, I think that the, one of the most important things that correlated with economic growth was literacy, like just the capacity to read and write. And literacy is still a big issue. Many, there are many 
communities or many countries that are that remain illiterate. So this is by no means a problem that has been solved. But another layer that has emerged is scientific literacy. And um, what I mean by scientific literacy is not like the knowledge of how many ATP molecules is produced by a chloroplast, it's the knowledge about how knowledge is produced. So how is it that you approach a question for which you don't have an answer? And what is the history of science in the production of knowledge and how that has impacted, you know, society and how that impacts your health and how that impacts your life and how that impacts education. And if we don't have a scientifically literate community, it's going to be really hard to have the economic growth that we that we desire or even the political decisions that need to be happening. Like, you know, there are debates happening uh, everywhere about uh, what people consider beliefs, like the belief of evolution or the belief of global warming or the belief in vaccines. And because people don't understand how knowledge is produced and the process of, of um, how theories are created and how knowledge is accumulated, then, then it's really hard to have a conversation about the difference between a belief and a fact. So uh, when we talk to these kids about how the GFP molecule was discovered and how we use it day to day to generate new knowledge and how we can use concepts that we're learning in a nematode or a fly or a crab or a mouse to understand fundamental things that are gonna change human health. We are communicating to them really the process of knowledge production and discovery in a way that will make them more informed citizens when it comes time to understand uh, you know, how that insulin shot that that their uncle is or their aunt is getting how it was produced and how how we arrived at that knowledge and uh, that benefit that is extending our life expectancy. So that that that's what I think. So I do think that there are two those are two beans that are synergistic, but they're two different beans: the benefit to the scientist and the benefit to the society. Also, considering that society is, I mean, what we're producing is a larger societal good that is uh, that. That is important for society to understand and recognize if we want um, support for scientific um, experiments and research to continue. So that's really interesting. And it's reminding me of sometimes when I go home um, to my rural community, I have friends that say, man, I can't believe you're a scientist. That's so cool. And I really try hard to say, no, 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 it's not that big of a deal. It was baby steps. You know, I went to high school and did well in high school. And then I went to college and did well in college. So kind of what I'm hearing you say is that, um, especially teaching kids, that the way we learn about the brain isn't by interrogating the whole human brain. It's by taking this small bite-sized piece that we can understand in a small, simple system and then learning about it there. Um, And I think that that it just makes it all more digestible and more less intimidating, which I think is very cool. So um, I, I also have friends that think it's really cool that I'm a scientist. And what's interesting is some of them are in fields that I consider science fields, like nursing. I'm like, well, what you do is science, even if you're not discovering new sciences. So um, when you work with children, do you try to emphasize that you know, there's lots of different ways to be a scientist, that it's not just, you know, professor. <laughs> yeah, I, well, when I, when, I, when I talk to the general public, including children, I, one of the things that I try to explain is how, how knowledge is produced and how it's applied and how all these things create different synergies. For example, uh, one example that I like to give is that uh, Charles Darwin, the person that first uh, proposed the concept of evolution, he had a daughter that was eight years old that died, and it really destroyed him. And uh, the way that she died was that she, she had scarlet fever, which is probably a disease that you have never heard about. And the reason you never heard about it is because it's a bacterial infection. Now, back, back when Charles Darwin was writing his books and had his daughter, we didn't know what bacteria were. We barely knew what microorganisms were. We didn't know that bacteria caused diseases or anything like that. So if you had a fever, like scarlet fever, you will do what was back then uh, top-level medical treatment, which is to go to a hot spring. Now, imagine yourself now with a bacterial infection and a fever going to a hot spring. <laughs> so that, that sounds pretty miserable, right? So, I mean, and, you know, medicine back then was... Like that. Medicine back then was, you know, they thought that there were four humors, like four basic, like, spirit-type things. 
And malaria, for example, until the 20th century, malaria is Italian for bad, bad air. And the reason is because they thought that it came through bad air. And that's why if you look at the pictures of the, the medieval pictures of the bubonic plague, you have these people wearing masks with very long noses. And the reason they have those long noses is because they'll put perfumes and filters there to filter out the bad air so they wouldn't get contaminated. So I guess the point that I'm making here is without basic research, medicine is is just a little bit more than just witchcraft. <laughs> so we need, because if you don't understand, it would be like, imagine, like, uh, I like to make an analogy between what we do and like a mechanic, a car mechanic, okay? So doctors will be like car mechanics. But the, the reason that car mechanics can work on a car is because they're engineers that design the car. So we, we were not the engineers that designed the human body. We are the reverse engineers that need to discover how cells work, how the human body works, so that doctors can do their work. Without our knowledge, without the knowledge that we're producing, the chemical knowledge that you're producing, the genetic knowledge, the biological knowledge, without that knowledge, you know, it's it's witchcraft. It's it's taking your daughter with fever to a hot spring and then watching them die. Literally, that's what that's what medicine will be, and you need you need this this knowledge and one of the things that I that I like to also uh, one of the things that I like to emphasize to the general public is that life expectancy at the beginning of the 20th century was about between 30 to 35 years um, which doesn't mean that most people live between 30 to 35 years what it means that is that most people died so young that the people that lived it would mean that if you had an audience of 200 people right now half of those people will be dead that's what it will, that's what literally means because they will have died very young and that was the same life expectancy. At the beginning of the 20th century, we had the same life expectancy that we had 40,000 years ago during the Stone Age. So human life expectancy did not change for 40,000 years. It changed dramatically in the 20th century, and it changed because we understood concepts like bacteria, and then we were able to like discover antibiotics uh, because we were able to discover vaccines. And you know, the 20th century saw everything from the discovery of antibiotics to the sequencing of the human genome. And that's what changed life expectancy. So one outreach program that you helped to bring about is called Ciencia Puerto Rico. Would you tell us a bit about that? So Ciencia Puerto Rico is an initiative that I started as a postdoc at Stanford University. And I, I like to say that science, the science, the knowledge that we produce is universal and it benefits everyone. It's a, a human good that benefits everybody. But where, where scientists come from um, is, you know, is very dependent on the individual and that influences, that background influences the way that they think about science and it benefits science, that, that, that diversity of backgrounds and opinions benefits science. And I, and it, but it also impacts the individual and in my case, it, I felt disconnected from my community of origin. I wanted to reconnect with my community and um, contribute to it and I was far away in California and so I created a essentially what I did is that I collaborated with with an undergrad at Stanford that had made this um, strain database for C. elegans uh, genetic strains and we modified it to make it into an online resource where people that were interested in science in Puerto Rico, they didn't have to be scientists or Puerto Rican actually, just people interested in science in Puerto Rico could go in sign up and exchange information and um, it will give some visibility to, some, to the scientists. It will allow the scientists to connect to uh, kids that were interested in science. We did that is uh, today a very large network. It has over 7,000 members and a number of different initiatives. And it has, the best way to summarize this is it's a platform where people with a with a common interest of science in Puerto Rico can come together and exchange ideas and uh, create new initiatives. Um, so I, I know you did say that a lot of different people, a lot of different scientists are doing that. Is it is it still growing a lot? Is um, or do you, I guess let me rephrase with my question. So it's really great that so many scientists are involved in this. Do you see similar initiatives growing up, growing in various other countries? I guess. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. I I I. I see that. So I see that within our network, like our network, there are people from over 50 different countries. And I mean, it was, it started, 
I started like this effort focused around Puerto Rico and it has grown beyond because, you know, at the end, these communities are very fluid. But at the same time, different communities have different needs. So um, we are, we have um, met and advised other communities of scientists that wanted to create similar networks. And the idea is not to create like uh, exclusive groups, but instead to to bring together people with common backgrounds only to contextualize. We all belong to the scientific, to the broader scientific community, but we also have communities that we come from. So can we be bridges between those two communities? And can we help uh, bring our background to bear in the benefit of science and contextualize what it means to be a scientist and what are the benefits of science to our communities of origin. That, that's, that is essentially the purpose. And I think in achieving that, we can, regardless of our, like the same way that we all collaborate in the production of knowledge, we can also collaborate in the dissemination of knowledge by exchanging as scientists, as members of this broader community that's called the scientific community, exchanging approaches. And as members of our distinct communities, applying those approaches to our to, to our specific communities, understanding the context of those communities to try to transmit that knowledge in a way that's more effective than if you were not exposed to that community. So I guess we, we missed out in asking you at the beginning, how did you get into science? And how did you get into your science? So how did I get into science? I, you know, I grew up in a tropical island that um, had a lot of biology going on. <laughs> and... Um, I I always like observing and asking questions, and I think um, that was encouraged by by the parents and the teachers that I had. Um, my asking questions. I do think that uh, we are all born scientists. I think in in a sense, in that the way that kids learn language, the way that they decipher language, the way they learn about the environment is not unlike the way that a scientist learns about anything. It's just uh, by trying, by asking, by... And it, it's uh, that that interest continues in some of us. And and that, that was, in, in my case, it continued and it was encouraged uh, by by people that were close to me. So that allowed me to, to uh, not stop asking questions, which is where I am. And how about your field of science? How did you get into your specific research project? Right. So I always, I mean, my specific research subject, which is the cell biology of the synapse, um, how neurons connect to each other. I mean, I've, I've always been fascinated by this concept of um, the, the architecture of the brain and connectivity. I mean, I, I, I was, when I was a kid, I didn't know about the architecture of the brain, but I, I was interested about how things were related to each other and uh, in nature and um, how, you know, symbiotic relationships in nature and things like that. So that always that always drew me conceptually. When I became a scientist, I I was always drawn to things that were beautiful, like um, images of cells in a microscope and uh, that microcosm that we cannot see with our with our plain sight, but we can illuminate with fluorescent probes and things like that. So, so when I was deciding on a field. I was deciding on a field that allowed me to access the questions uh, looking through a microscope, so that's cell biology. And then I wanted to understand that in the context in which these cells cooperated to form a living thing, so that's development. And then I wanted to understand how the precision is important for this emerging property called behavior. So that's how, and so, so, so I figured, well, you know, keystone, very important to this, is going to be these connections that are made between cells. And that's how I decided to focus on that. But it took, look, it wasn't, I, I can explain it now in three sentences, but it, <laughs> that was a decade of wrestling and really trying to verbalize. Like we were talking before about the importance of putting into words what you like, what you don't like and what you do and you know what we know and what we don't know so it was in that process that that um, through many years i was able to refine um, and kind of stochastically find what 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 i was interested in so it's very tempting for many of us who work in science to go into the lab and stay there all day and not come out and then at the end of the day we go home and we call it a success Mm -hmm. Um, without ever talking to anybody who's not working in science. 
I wonder if um, perhaps we should be getting out a bit more. I think I think probably most of us can think about when we were not scientists and how important it was for us to have a teacher or a mentor or somebody that reached out and made science uh, seem accessible. And that's what drew us to science. And we should ask ourselves about what our roles are in that. And I will argue that the same way that if you were to spend every day in the next year going to conferences, there will be diminishing returns to the amount of time that you're spending traveling and going to conferences in your scientific career. Um, spending every waking hour at the lab will have at a certain point diminishing returns. There are times where you need to spend a lot of time in the lab, and there are times where you need to spend thinking about what you're doing, and there are times where you need to spend discussing what you're doing or disseminating the knowledge that you have. And there's time for everything. And I think it's a matter of uh, striking a balance, uh, like everything in life, striking a balance that, that, that is not quite a balance. It's more a recognition that you can only do one thing at a time, but doing different things at different times uh, will increase, will, will, will create synergies that will benefit your career. So you communicate a lot with kids. I presume you also communicate a lot with non-scientist adults. How does your message change in between those? Are there different things that you emphasize, different things that you um, are trying to get each audience to understand? Or is it just kind of um, maybe different levels of detail about the same information? I think one, one of the, to answer that question, I'll tell you an anecdote. One of the most interesting conferences that I've been to was a conference organized by the National Academies of Science and the Catholic Foundation. And they brought together scientists that were working in black holes and scientists that were working in what's called self-healing materials, which are chemists that work on materials that, that fix themselves, and scientists that were working on connections between neurons. That's the group that I participated in. Scientists working on mega earthquakes, etc. You get the idea. And they brought some of the top scientists working on these different areas, all young, and about 100 people. And uh, we had to stand up and present to the other scientists what we were doing. And what I realized in the course of that conference is that outside of our very narrow specialization, we're all lay people. And that I think we can get on a high horse and say, well, if you don't understand that, it's because you, know, you're, you're, you don't have enough knowledge or you're not smart enough to a lay person. But it's really hard to look at an astrophysicist that's a professor at Harvard who just explained to you in lay terms what a black hole is and what the most interesting questions are, and look at them in the eye and say, you're an idiot for not understanding what I'm trying to explain, right? <laughs> so, so it was a humbling experience, and it really forced everyone to, to learn how to communicate their science both precisely, accurately, but uh, accessibly. And so when I talk to kids and when I talk to adults, that's, that's what I try to do. I feel, depending on the audience, I think that um, adults and kids, actually, they're sometimes their levels of, of knowledge about certain subjects are, can, are quite similar, actually, depending on also the age of the kid. But what the difference is that adults usually have more opinions. <laughs> so they, they might think that they know. And, um, but in both cases, they, you know, we, we're, we all are... Um, outside, again, just to emphasize this, outside of our very narrow fields of expertise, we are lay people. That's why we, sometimes when we're flipping through channels, we find a great documentary about, you know, something that we're not an expert on in the Discovery Channel, and we watch it and we learn a lot, right? If we were experts in everything, we wouldn't have to do that. So I have a last question. Um, well, I guess it's two last questions for you. Uh, do you have any advice for budding scientists out there? And then I'll ask you the other one after that. So uh, advice for budding scientists. Um, my main advice for budding scientists would be to um, choose your mentors carefully. And the that uh, I, I think, you know, our our craft, what we do, is really an apprenticeship. So it, we learn from the person that we're working with. And that's the single most important decision that you make as a scientist is who you train with. And it's like a, almost like a lifelong decision. It doesn't have to be, but it can be sometimes. And many times it turns into that. So I, I will, so how, how to choose a mentor? Well, well, choose a person that 
they don't have to be your best friend. That that is not the same thing a mentor as a friend. But they do have to be somebody that's invested in your development professionally. It has to be somebody that you can work with well. And it has to be somebody that has shown a track record of success in what you're trying to do. And so you know that you're learning from the best person that you can learn from. And that, that I think if, you know, that single point I think can be transformative in somebody's career. And then my last question is kind of along the same lines. Um, but if there was one piece of information, whether scientific or not, that you hope that everybody learns or everybody knows to keep science going, what would that be? I, I will say maybe two things. Um, one of them is that most people think because, you know, you go to school and you learn all these things, you get this false impression that we know the answer to most things. And I will start by saying that we, uh, we're actually ignorant about the most important questions. You take the term biology, which means the study of life. We, there's nobody right now that could, 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 could define in scientific terms what life is. And I'm not talking metaphysically or philosophically. I'm talking quite literally what's the difference between an organism that's alive and one that just died. Like, so I, and that, that just goes to the term of biology, study of life, right? So, I mean, I like that. There are a billion questions that we don't understand. So uh, we, so the most exciting questions out there are, are yet to be answered, and maybe somebody listening to this will answer some of those questions. And the second thing is to recognize that science, unlike most other things, because we understand so little, in most other things you can make a business plan. You can come up with a plan of a design. Like you say, I'm going to go to the moon, I need a rocket, that kind of thing. But in science, you know, you like I was talking about Charles Darwin before with his daughter, like if you don't know what a bacteria is, you cannot cure it. If you don't know about transmission of diseases by mosquitoes, you're going to think that you're getting sick because there's bad air. And so in, so in science, we need to produce knowledge in order to be able to advance our understanding of things before we can actually have practical applications. And if we don't have that knowledge, there's no way we're going to be able to advance any practical application of anything. It's just... Uh, we're, we can only we can only uh, apply what we know. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Hello. Okay. Thank you again to Dr. Daniel Colon Ramos from Yale University for being with us and allowing us to record um, record him a couple a couple weeks ago, I guess. Um, so this is our last big electron for the semester. It's been great uh, having you all listen to us, and I hope you join us again in the fall. Have a great summer.